All right, so the seven trumpets. This is a, a really challenging subject. And if you look at commentators, it seems like people are all kind of all over the map on what the trumpets mean. So again, I, we're going through this quickly one time, and then uh, we're going to go back to the last few Bible studies of the year and, and try to put together some important pieces. Okay? So we are in the three cycle of sevens in this book. Okay, so last time we talked about the um, seals, the four horses. And this time we'll talk about the seven trumpets, especially the first six. And then next time we'll talk about the, the bowls of wrath. Okay, so go through these three. And um, for those of you that haven't been here, kind of what I've been trying to describe and which many other interpreters of Revelation, especially recently, have understood this book is that the center of the book is the, the cosmic conflict section there, Revelation chapter 12 through 14. There was war in heaven. And that the trumpets, the seals, and the bowls um, revolve around and expand on the issues in the cosmic conflict. Okay, that we see the book in that light. And that the, the symbols and all of this, it informs our theology. Okay, it changes the way we view the world. It's value-oriented more than it is uh, chronologically or timeline or date or you know, identifying specific individuals in history. So I thought um, I had a couple emails from, uh, from two of you this week um, who I think have maybe started the Bible study fairly recently and just wanted a little bit, uh, what do you mean cosmic conflict? What's all that about? And so for most of you here, we've been over this quite a bit, but we really haven't in this trip to Revelation gone through the, the heart of the book, Revelation 12 through 14. So we will do that, but I just want to pull out a few verses here. And um, I've said before that if we were laying out the Bible chronologically, it wouldn't start with Genesis 1.1. Okay? It would actually start with something before. Of course, we've got a serpent in the tree, right? So something happened before the creation of Eden. So this would be here my candidate text for what happened before. And of course, even before that, before God created anything external to himself... There was God, and there was peace, and then God created, and we have an angelic world. But this verse here describes uh, the problem. Okay, then war broke out in heaven, and the word here is polemos, okay, which is, uh, we get the word polemics from this, the art or practice of argumentation or controversy. And as we've described that the war was not uh, tanks and lightning bolts kind of a thing, but this was uh, a war of ideas with a deceiver planting false ideas about the kind of person God is. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, who fought back with his angels, but the dragon was defeated, and he and his angels were not allowed to stay in heaven any longer. The huge dragon was thrown out, and the writer here wants to make sure we don't miss the identity of the dragon, because the dragon goes through the whole book of Revelation is, is a central figure to the plot. That ancient serpent, okay, well, that, that brings us back to Eden, Okay, and kind of highlights the, the deception there. Named the devil or Satan. Okay, so very clear who the dragon is. That deceived the whole world. He was thrown down to earth and all his angels with him. Okay, and so Revelation is explaining this story. What happened in heaven and what's gone on uh, on earth. Okay, and we read about this dragon that with his tail he dragged a third of the stars out of the sky and threw them down to the earth. Uh, this verse will be important as we try to understand the trumpets. Notice, the third. Okay, we'll come back to that. <clears throat> okay, so he's thrown down to earth, and this, these uh, three chapters tell a lot about his activities on the earth. Okay, we're warned, but how terrible for the earth and the sea, 
For the devil has come down to you with great wrath. Okay, that's kind of what we described a little bit in the seal sequence last time, going from the white horse to the red horse to the black horse to the pale horse and, and the devastation kind of in the wake of all of that. And he began to pursue the woman, the church, and from his mouth the dragon poured out a flood of water after the woman. The dragon was furious with the woman. And so we'll come back to this later, but this passage here, these few chapters describe the conflict between the dragon and the woman and how God helped the woman. Okay, and the beast was allowed to make proud claims which were insulting to God. He began to curse God, his name. Okay, and we kind of made a big deal out of that, that the dragon, the... The methods here are to slander God's name, which is his character, his reputation, the place where he lives, and all those who live in heaven. Okay, and the, the coercive methods here of the dragon and the beast, which is kind of an extension of the dragon, that the beast forced all the people, small and great, rich and poor, slave and free, to have a mark. Okay, we'll talk about the mark of the beast later. And there's no relief day or night for those who worship the beast in his image. So the, the beast, the dragon, is very active in this book. Okay, and so as we look through the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls, okay, the usual or probably the most common method of interpretation of those does not incorporate the demonic at all. It's all God's activity. Okay, that's why putting these three chapters here at the center is very important. We see, well, there's a lot going on, a lot of demonic activity here. Okay, and I think this one is really important. Remember the throne room scene we talked about, that when you get to the heart of the throne, who's there? It's the violently slaughtered lamb and all of the things that happen with that realization. Okay, and there's another beast that, that is the lamb-like beast that has the same uh, description. Okay, the importance here is imitation. So the dragon gave the beast his own power, his throne, and his vast authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have been fatally wounded. And again, the language here in the Greek, this wounding, it is the violently slaughtered, the same kind of uh, language that is used for the lamb who is fatally wounded. Okay, so again, the methods are slander and there's imitation along with this. Okay, but the wound had been healed, the whole earth was amazed and followed the beast and everyone worshipped the dragon. Okay, which is another thing why um, it's puzzled me a little bit why... Satan isn't talked about very much in the book of Revelation. I mean, if we have this verse here, everyone worship the dragon. Well, shouldn't that be a big deal? We don't want to worship the dragon. Okay, so we want to understand how do we worship the lamb? Okay, the real lamb. Okay, so uh, last time I talked a little bit about the followers of the lamb. And many times through Revelation, 144,000, they follow the lamb wherever he goes. They follow the true lamb. Okay, but the other description that's repeated so often is, and I think is important is the quality. What does it mean to follow the Lamb? Okay, so here in Revelation 12, 17, those who obey God's commandments, so here are the people that follow the Lamb and are faithful to the truth revealed by Jesus. Okay, again, well, what truth did Jesus reveal? Okay, and how many times he repeated his mission, which was to reveal the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. This is eternal life to know God. How do you know God? Through Jesus Christ. So those who are faithful to God are faithful to the truth about God that was revealed by Jesus. And again, this is repeated so many times. In Revelation 19, 10, I'm a servant together with you, with other believers, all those who hold to the truth that Jesus revealed. Worship God for the truth that Jesus revealed is what inspires the prophets. 
So the truth that Jesus revealed about God is the central thing. If you had to hold on to one thing, this would be it. Okay, and again, Revelation 20, I saw the souls of those who had been executed because they had proclaimed the truth that Jesus revealed. Okay, so that's, that's an important point. Now, just a summary about what we said about Revelation so far. But we've said that the seven churches, remember, are invited up to uh, experience a revelation. And that here in the throne room scene, what we see is God in all his power. He's honored for his power, for being the creator. And he's praised by the four living creatures and the 72 elders for being powerful, for being creator. But then there's this problem. No one's worthy to open the stroll. There's a challenge. Okay, and the solution to the challenge is we get to the middle, the center, the heart of the throne, and there we see the violently slaughtered lamb. And there, it goes from four to 72 to now thousands and millions and all beings in the universe. Okay, so the numbers here, again, have a theological significance, which is to, um, to explain this expansion of, of praise. Okay, so the seven seals then are kind of an explanation, an answer to the challenge, who is worthy, okay? And so the, the interpretation we explored last time is that the rider on the white horse is actually uh, not a good individual. We paralleled him with uh, Gog in Ezekiel who also carries the bow. Remember, Satan can disguise, disguise himself to look like an angel of light. And as the horse, as the riders are unveiled, as we get to the second, third, and fourth seal, again, we go to war, hunger, and poverty, and death. Okay, and so the natural question again, witnessing just the devastation of, of our planet and all that has happened, we get to the fifth seal, which is the theodicy question. Okay, God, you're all powerful. What in the world is going on? How can you have an enemy and how can you allow this suffering that we see on our planet? Okay, and remember the answer was, well, just hang in there and wait until all of the others have also been persecuted. Okay, we'll come back to this. And then the sixth seal describes the two groups. We have the 144,000 and a very different group of people. And the contrast here in the two groups is that one hides from the face of the lamb. Okay, and uh, they're afraid of the wrath of the lamb. The other group will see his face. Okay, and every tear will be wiped from their eyes. So again, there's a dramatic contrast between two groups. And then we have this uh, spectacular silence in heaven Okay, and as we said last time, if we allow our text for this, our Old Testament reference, all this has an Old Testament reference. Uh, if we allow our Old Testament reference for this to be the suffering servant song, which is where we get the violently slaughtered lamb imagery, this describes silence in heaven. And the silence is brought about by shock and awe at the revelation of God in Jesus as he died and what he went through. And that no one could have envisioned this solution to the problem which again ties all the way back to the throne room scene, that the violently slaughtered lamb is the one on the throne. Okay, so those are the seals very quickly. And this point we made in the first lesson is I just think so important for one way of understanding Revelation, that we see these not as chronological, but overlapping. Okay, I gave you kind of a case for that before about all of the things that line up in the seals, trumpets and bowls, and that they all have the same ending point. Okay, so therefore, what we have talked about with the seals, if that is correct, then there should be a parallel understanding in the trumpet sequence. Okay, we're looking at things from a different perspective, but there should be overlap. 
Okay? And uh, so I have explained Revelation. I think a good way to think of it is like a symphony where we have a theme and it's repeated. We get variations on the theme, but it's the same theme. The theme is the cosmic conflict. Okay, but we're getting it from different perspectives and it does crescendo, it does build up to an end, but we're still repeating that theme. Um, I also gave you the analogy of that movie Vantage Point where you witness the assassination of a president from one perspective and then you go back in time, you witness it from another perspective, you go back in time. Okay, and uh, I don't think I shared this quote with you, but just to kind of say there are other people that are thinking about Revelation in this way. This is from uh, a book called Revelation of a Just World, Vision. And so the description here of Revelation was as a dramatic motion picture analogy whose individual scenes portray the same person or action each time from a different angle or perspective while simultaneously adding some new insight to the whole. Okay, so that's what we're going to try to do with the, the trumpets. Now, um, I don't know if I would say there's universal... Well, I know there isn't universal agreement, but there does seem to be one thing that um, seems to be in common with most interpreters of the trumpet sequence. And you might recognize some names on here. And most see this as a punishment from God. I'll just read some of the summary quotes here. That, that the trumpets are judgments God will pour out on the unsaved world, or they're actual judgments on the majority of Earth's inhabitants, or they represent God's covenant curses on his enemies, they represent that the primary focus of the trumpets is punitive judgment and that the trumpets represent the righteous judgments and vengeance upon those who viciously harassed and oppressed the faithful. Okay, So this is um, a little bit what we're up against, which is a big, you know, a lot of um, common uh, perception of the trumpets. Well, let's just go through them and let's see if we can put it together. Okay, so starting in Revelation 8, verse 7, the first angel sounded, and there followed hail and fire mingled with blood, and they were cast upon the earth, and a third part of the trees was burnt up, and all the green grass was burnt up. And maybe just something you can ask yourself as we're going through the trumpets is, does this sound like a good reality that is being unveiled, or does it sound like something that is not good? Well, this doesn't sound very good, does it, the first one? Let's read the second one. The second angel sounded. And as it were, a great mountain burning with fire was cast into the sea. And a third part of the sea became blood. And a third part of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died. And a third part of the ships were destroyed. Okay, so this is not a, a good reality. Whatever this is trying to um, describe for us, okay, there's, there's destruction. And the, the third part all the way through here, uh, as we'll see, is I think important. Fourteen times. One-third is mentioned just in the trumpet sequence. Okay, then the third angel blew his trumpet. A large star burning like a torch dropped from the sky and fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is bitterness. A third of the water turned bitter and many people died from drinking the water because it had turned bitter. Okay, and I don't see many of you with your Bibles here, but I bet if... Any of you were just to open up your Bible, if you have a Bible that has footnotes, uh, you will all have a text that's associated with this large star burning like a torch, or it could be a great blazing star. And I bet all of your little references there will have Isaiah 14, verse 12. Okay, again, one of the principles we talked about uh, in understanding Revelation is to take the Old Testament references very seriously. 
when you find a direct reference uh, for the Old Testament in the book of Revelation, go back, not just identify the text, but read around it. What's the context? What is being described? So if we're trying to understand the identity, what's going on here in the trumpets, well, here we have someone or something being described. So if we have an Old Testament reference for that, we want to go back and see what is being described. So let's turn to Isaiah 14, which is a funeral poem. Okay? And so the language here is, How you are fallen from heaven, O shining one, son of the dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. And of course, if you have a King James or a New King James or many other uh, translations, this uh, shining one, and we get this from the Latin, is Lucifer. Okay, but the shining one, bright, brilliant star. Okay, this text, the third or the third trumpet in uh, Revelation, is describing this story here. You said in your heart, "I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of assembly on the heights of Zaphon. I will ascend to the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High." So six times in here, "I will do this. I will do this." And we can see that this is the polar opposite of God's kingdom, right? Ascending, trying to reach the top, pushing other people down. Okay, Jesus, remember, did exactly the opposite. He went down, down, down to the tomb. Okay, this individual is trying to climb up. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the depths of the abyss. Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the one who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms? who made the world like a desert and overthrew its cities, who would not let his prisoners go home. All the kings of the nations lie in glory, each in his own tomb, but you are cast out, away from your grave, like loathsome carrion, clothed with the dead, those pierced by the sword, who go down to the stones of the pit like a corpse trampled underfoot. You will not be joined with them in burial because you destroyed your land, you have killed your people. And so the description here is of a destroyer. You killed your own people. Okay, now, most of you know we've referenced this uh, verse several times, this passage, as a description, a very important description uh, that describes the fall of Lucifer and the lofty aspirations to go up, up, and up. Remember, he even asked Jesus in the wilderness temptation to get down and worship him. Okay, so he's trying to ascend and this is the third trumpet. So we want to take this back to the third trumpet. And what's really interesting is when you compare Isaiah and Revelation, okay, so what we just read here in the passage in, in Isaiah is a great, brilliant star, the morning star, who was in heaven, but there was a fierce struggle, okay, and he fell to earth, and then eventually down into the abyss. goes from the heaven to the earth, and then down into the abyss, and we're given the title. He is the destroyer. You've destroyed your own people. Okay? This is perfectly paralleled in Revelation in much more expanded form. Okay? Remember Revelation 12, there was war in heaven. Okay? And we have a description of a struggle. And then he was thrown down to earth. Okay? And Revelation 12 to 14 describes all of his activity on the earth. The trumpets, I think, describe all of his activity. Destruction on the earth. And then we get to Revelation 20. And what happens? He's thrown down into the abyss. Okay, and we even get the description, the name, the identity of this individual in Revelation. He is the destroyer. So 
Isaiah 14 and Revelation, they are describing the same thing, okay, from the great star all the way down to the pit and the abyss. Okay, so we see this coming back um, here in the fifth trumpet, but I think it's really significant. We try to put the trumpets together that this person be a central part of what is going on in the trumpet sequence. Okay, so in the seventh, uh, the fourth trumpet, the fourth angel blew his trumpet. A third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, a third of the stars, so that their light lost a third of its brightness. There was no light during a third of the day and a third of the night also. Okay, how many times this third comes up here in, in the trumpet sequence? Okay, what does this mean? Um, well, um, I don't want to spend a long time on Daniel, but I think if we kind of allow some of the imagery in Daniel here to explain what's going on in Revelation, um, I guess this is maybe three years ago, so most of you probably weren't here, but the little horn in Daniel that grew strong enough to attack the army of heaven, the stars themselves, it threw some of them to the ground and trampled on them. Okay, and Daniel even explains, well, what does it mean? I mean, is Satan strong enough to actually physically throw angels down to darken the sun? Okay, and the, the description, the clarification as we just read on is that the little horn even defied the prince of the heavenly army. Wouldn't that be Jesus? And true religion, or in some versions, truth, was thrown to the ground. So I think the, the darkening of the sun by a third and the stars and all of this, this is describing truth being thrown to the ground. At least that, that's the application that I would like to make. And um, so maybe we get more clarification here in the, in the uh, fifth trumpet. Okay, so this one is, I think, the most significant. The fifth angel blew his trumpet and I saw a star which had fallen down to the earth. Now, this is the one we just read about, right? The third trumpet describes the star that fell to earth. And now the fifth trumpet describes the, st the star that had fallen to the earth. Same person. And it was given the key to the abyss. The star opened the abyss and smoke poured out of it like the smoke from a large furnace. The sunlight and the air were darkened by the smoke from the abyss. Locusts came down out of the smoke upon the earth. And they were given the same kind of power that scorpions have. Okay, so what book of the Bible describes the locusts? Joel, right? The whole book, very bizarre description of all of the locusts. So again, get a reference back there to the Old Testament. And I think there's some significant um, features here that the locusts come from the north. Okay, so Joel's no locusts, uh, the locust army comes from the north. And coming from the north, is uh, really significant. The north is contested territory. The passage we just read in Isaiah 14, the bright morning star, you thought you would sit like a king on the mountain in the north. Where's Mount Zion? Okay, Mount Zion is on the sides of the north. Okay, remember what, what Satan wants is worship. He desires to sit on the sides of the north. So we have this kind of contested army and Joel's locusts here come from the north. And Gog that we talked about last time. A lot of parallels between Gog, um, both in the seals and as we get to Revelation 19. Gog personifies the forces that are hostile to God. Okay, where does he come from? He will set out to come from your place in the far north, leading a large, powerful army of soldiers from many nations, all of them on horseback. And again, so many parallels here. The destruction of Gog's army, they stink, their corpses rot. Same description we get in, in Revelation 19. So I think the fact that the locust army comes from the north would kind of parallel their leader, who I would say is a, a figure of Satan 
here who desires to sit on the sides of the north. Okay, so let's read about the locusts. The locusts looked like horses ready for battle. On their heads, they had what seemed to be crowns of gold, and their faces were like human faces. Their hair was like woman's hair. Their teeth were like lion's teeth. Their chests were covered with what looked like iron breastplates, and the sound made by their wings was like the noise of many horse-drawn chariots rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like those of a scorpion, and it is with their tails that they have the power to hurt people. Okay, so again, complex imagery, but uh, what is the meaning? What's trying to be described? I think the most important thing is, are they good or bad? Can we at least put them into that category? And I think we can clearly put them in the bad category because Revelation tells us who their leader is. They have a king ruling over them, who is the angel in charge of the abyss. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon. In Greek, his name is Apollyon, meaning the destroyer. And that's Revelation 14, is the destroyer. And remember the, the third angel, or the third trumpet, the one that is thrown down, is given the key to the abyss. He opens it up, and all the locusts pour out. Okay, And that individual is the destroyer. So if we want to be more specific, I would say this is Satan. The, the, the image here is of a satanic activity. Okay, so uh, the locusts that look like horses... And just to go back here, their power is in their mouths and also in their tails. Their tails are like snakes with heads and they use them to hurt people. Okay, so uh, I kind of went uh, shopping here in the Old Testament just to see if there could be any, anything that would help us here. Uh, interesting that in Isaiah 9, describing false prophets, that God will cut them off head and tail. The old and honorable men are the head and the tail is the prophets whose teachings are lies. Okay? I don't like to use the key text, you know, kind of a method here, but uh, could it be that uh, this description here is, again, uh, kind of getting into a, a deceptive um, activity? Um, I have a friend who's a psychiatrist uh, named Tim Jennings. I think some of you know Dr. Jennings. And he is doing a very uh, highly uh, interpretive uh, paraphrase of the book of Revelation, which uh, he shared with me. Uh, it hasn't been published yet, but here's, his, um, here's how he translates uh, this verse, Revelation 9:19. The power of these enemy forces came from lies and falsehoods they promoted, symbolized by the smoke coming from their mouths and their tails being like snakes which were able to inflict injury. Okay, so you don't get this from the Greek, but it's, it's an interesting uh, interpretation that, that I would agree with. Okay, so we get to the sixth angel who blew his trumpet and I heard a voice coming from the four corners of the gold altar, standing before God. And the voice said to the sixth angel, release the four angels who are bound at the great Euphrates River. And um, you'll notice that of all the seal sequences, we said the least about the sixth seal. We're going to say the least about the sixth trumpet because there is just a, a lot of details in here that we're going to come back to and try to put it together. But notice these angels are holding back the evil forces. Okay. And now they're told to release the four angels and the four angels were released. And for this very hour, this very day, this very month and year, they had been kept ready to kill a third of all the human race. Now, we'll need to spend some time uh, talking about this, but in the sixth seal, uh, what is the one of the central images there is the wrath of the lamb, God's wrath, okay, which sounds very active. 
Okay, but as we went through all the descriptions of God's wrath in the Old Testament, in Romans 1, which three times says that God's wrath is giving them up, giving them up, giving them up. Okay, that these angels release the winds. Okay, and what happens? These locusts who in Joel were too many to count. Okay, we get the same uh, description here as Revelation, the story of Revelation continues on. I was told the number of the mounted troops, it was 200 million. And in my vision, I saw the horses and their riders. They had breastplates, red as fire, blue as sapphire, yellow as sulfur. The horses' heads were like lion's heads. And from their mouths came out fire, smoke, and sulfur. A third of the human race was killed by these three plagues, the fire, the smoke, and the sulfur coming out of the horses' mouths. And again, I would take this as um, that still their king is the destroyer. That this, again, is describing a, a demonic reality. Okay, so how can, we, how can we say, other than pointing to Isaiah 14, that that is really what's happening? Remember uh, our first lecture, we said that the numerical patterns, the numbers in Revelation have a theological significance. Notice, it just can't have happened accidentally that we have seven Beatitudes, seven times the word Christ is used, that seven times the phrase God and the Lamb, that seven times Christ says, I am coming, Seven times the phrase the Lord God Almighty is used. That seven times the one who sits on the throne is used. We have seven times the witness of Jesus, seven times the witnesses of Jesus. And very significant um, that we talked about, I think is such an important point here, that these three phrases are used in total seven times. The Alpha and the Omega, the beginning, the end, the first and the last. So again, the numbers here have a, have a theological um, significance. Well, there's another number here in the trumpet sequence, a third. Okay, and so um, Sigby Tonstead, uh, who has just a fantastic book on Revelation called Saving God's Reputation, um, he makes a lot out of this. So here's, here's his uh, interpretation of the third. Okay, when the influence of Revelation 12 is felt, and by Revelation 12, he's talking about the dragon that, that threw down with its tail a third of the stars, Okay, when that influence of Revelation 12 is felt on prior passages in Revelation, the thrust of the recurring third suggests a sense that will not be a reference to quantity in answer to the questions of what or where or how much. It must also be seen as a qualitative reference, an answer to the question who. With an eye on the beginning, the thirds under the trumpets serve as a signifier of agency. Okay, it gets an identifying mark and therefore as a telltale sign of demonic activity. The revelator perceives in these thirds the fingerprint of Satan on all the instances of disaster and suffering that he catalogs, and he proposes to feature them by invoking the original satanic trademark, whose tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven. Okay, that would kind of go along with uh, the point last week that I was trying to make about uh, the seals and the riders on the horses. Okay, so he continues, the critical and distinctive point in this perception of the narrative is that before Revelation tells of the end of Satan, the reader is informed of the character of his activity. That all the big imagery, the complex imagery in the trumpet sequence is to describe us the character of Satan and the activity that he's involved in. The reader is informed of the character of his activity, telling the story again and again from new and progressively revealing angles. So we need to come back to this again when we get to the bowl sequence. In the trumpet sequence, it is his activity that is depicted. In contrast to views, 
that see the calamities accompanying the trumpets primarily as God's judgments on human beings who are disobedient. Okay, so we really have two very different ways we can look at the, the trumpet sequence. Who is the acting subject? That's the key question. And again, most Christian theology has only seen two acting subjects. It's God and humans. In that third part of the triangle, the, the satanic, is what uh, Dr. Tonstead is, is trying to put in here. So again, the whole of Revelation is contrasting between two very different individuals. The violently slaughtered lamb and the dragon. Okay, And the, I think this way of looking at Revelation, the contrast gets greater and greater between these two very different individuals. So uh, I'll just finish with this point. There are two types of punishment. Okay, One type any parent can identify with, and that is you punish for the purpose of discipline. Okay, And so I punish my children occasionally, but it is for their good. It's for their healing. It's for... You know, that, that something good can come out of it. If your kids are abusing the Internet or whatever it might be, you, quotes punish them. You take it away for a week. Okay, but you're doing it because you're hoping to heal. You're hoping to, to get them turned around. So God has done a lot of that, that type of punishing. Here, just one verse in, in Jeremiah 30. I will discipline you, but with justice. I cannot let you go unpunished. So the description of God's punishing here, again, it's a, it's a discipline. So the question is, and I would think this is a really important issue in Christianity today and really a big um, uh, maybe controversy that around this subject. Does God retributively punish? Does God punish not for the sake of healing, not for the sake of the individual's own good, but in the end, is there some sort of a, a balance ledger and that individuals who choose not to be God's friend, who don't trust in Jesus and all of that, that they must, for the sake of satisfying perhaps some abstract sense of justice, need to be punished just for the sake of punishment. That's retributive punishment. Okay. Now, I'll give you a, a personal and, and somewhat embarrassing story on this. Uh, about two weeks ago, I developed a lot of uh, dental pain on the right side. And every time I would drink something cold, I would get a, a twinge of pain. And finally, I saw a dentist and had a, an x-ray and I had a, a fractured tooth that went very deep. And, you know, physicians are the worst patients. So I put it off and two weeks went by. And uh, then three days ago, developed just excruciating pain. I mean, it was unbelievable. It was like uh, just a needle being constantly pushed in the tooth area. I mean, I, I could not function. Okay, so I called my dentist. Uh, it's only the second time in my life I've taken Vicodin, which uh, really only took the edge off it for about two hours. So I was in misery until yesterday morning. Yesterday morning, I finally had surgery, and it's just night and day, completely back to normal now. But it just the thought occurred to me. Okay, this is a very trivial amount of pain in the scope of what most people go through in their life. But the thought just occurred to me, um, does God inflict pain? Um, if we are his rebels, does he inflict pain? Well, would you do that to your child? Your child, let's say, who rebels, leaves home, wants nothing to do with you. Um, would you want to punish them just in a retributive sense? Okay, I think it's a really important uh, kind of a character of God um, question. And I would just say, uh, whenever we talk about this, a lot of the Old Testament stories come up. 
Okay, so let's just bring up one in a snapshot because the flood often comes to mind as a story. Well, didn't God retributively punish there? Weren't the people very evil? And then God sent the flood to punish? Okay, that would be one way of looking at that story. Okay, but here's another way of looking at that story. Let's just read uh, a couple of verses here from Genesis about Noah. Noah had no faults and was the only good man of his time. He lived in fellowship with God, but everyone else was evil in God's sight. And violence had spread everywhere. We have these 100%, all or nothing statements here. God looked at the world and saw that it was evil for the people were all living evil lives except Noah. And then the Lord said to Noah, go into the boat with your whole family. I have found that you are the only one in all the world who does what is right. So the question is, was Noah really the last good man? And I think you could make a good case that he really was because who got on the boat? No one, only his family. I mean, if God had known he had a thousand friends, he would have built a fleet of ships, right? Okay, but Noah was the only one that got on. So one way to look at the flood would be punishment for sin. Uh, Another way to look at the flood would be, well, what do you imagine would happen? Noah dies and now God has no one, not one. What do you think happens to planet Earth when we go decades, centuries? Not one person. No one trusts in God. Do you think, I mean, what happens when the planet is completely detached from its creator? And I would say literally all hell would break loose in that situation. So one way of looking at the flood would be retribution. Another way of looking at the flood would be as a rescue mission. God saved the last man with a trusting relationship with him. And then, of course, from Noah, we have Abraham. And we have an avenue for the Messiah to come. And I think we could do that with every single Old Testament story where we could see God is not there to inflict painful punishment for sin, but rather God is intervening because it was necessary to restore and to heal and eventually for the Messiah to come. Okay? So, um, again, can we look at those stories and not see retribution, but rather God intervening, as some have used, using emergency measures? Okay? I think the other really important point when we think about punishment is what do we make out of sin and God's law? Is God's law something that is arbitrarily imposed? And is the breaking of the law bad mainly because God doesn't like it when we break the law and he punishes those who break the law? Okay? Or is all law, all law really describing the reality of how things are? And the ultimate law is love. Okay? And when you break that law, the law of love for God, love for others, service, all of these things we could put in there, okay, that, that is really what sin describes. And that the consequences for sin is inherent to sin, not externally imposed by God. Okay? I think that's, that's really important. What do we understand the nature of sin? And uh, just I'll read a couple of verses here that... Clearly, we can make a big case that there is an inherent consequence to sin. Here in Jeremiah 2, God says, You have brought this on yourself by abandoning the Lord. Your own wickedness will correct you. Your unfaithful ways will punish you. You should know and see how evil and bitter it is for you if you abandon the Lord your God. The consequence is inherent, not not, uh, externally imposed. And in Jeremiah 4, Judah, you have brought this on yourself by the way you have lived and by the things you have done. Your sin has caused this suffering. It has stabbed you through the heart. So all of this, 
as, as so many things all kind of filter down on the cross. What do we see happening on the cross? Okay, and the, the description of all the sins of the world were placed on Jesus. Okay, do we imagine the Father punishing his Son? What was it that punished Jesus? Okay, and I think the cross, as we've described, is where we see the inherent, intrinsic, destructive consequences of sin. God doesn't need to punish sin. It does its own punishing. And as I think, uh, as we get through the, the bowl sequence, maybe we can make a better case for separation from God leading to everything just to implode and unravel. God doesn't need to externally go in and do something. Okay, so next time we'll talk about the bowls, and then we'll have a little uh, break after that. Let's pray. Dear Father, for each person here, as uh, we each build our own picture of who you are, what kind of a person you are, your um, action in response to rebellion, uh, what you do with people that leave your side, and uh, also as we try to put in the the cosmic opponent in all of this. uh, We just pray that as we put this together that our picture of God would increasingly become more like Jesus Christ. Amen.